G'day, welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Before I get started on this episode's story, a look at another Tasmanian convict site with a long and varied history, I want to just add a little addendum to the last episode on the development of Australian dog breeds. Someone I follow on the Mastodon social media platform pointed out that I had missed mentioning the wonderful Cooley, another working dog breed developed here. Hull provided a brief mention of Cooleys as a dog type, but Morris's Dictionary of Dogs doesn't include Cooleys at all that I could see. Likewise, Dogs Australia and the American Kennel Association also omit them, probably indicating they don't consider them a formal breed, according to their strict guidelines. But Wiki has an entry for the delightful Coolie, as well as a site called dogbreed.com indicating the existence of a Coolie club in Australia formed in the year 2000. They note that along with working agreeably as gentle stock control dogs, Coolies are, quote, also successfully used in such things as rescue, pets for therapy, quarantine work, explosive detection dogs, hmm, as well as making great companion dogs in suitable circumstances, unquote. So you can look those up there if you want a bit more information on coolies. They are a very interesting looking dog. And just quickly for those who enjoyed the episodes on the Snowy Hydro scheme, I note that at the time of writing this, SBS Television in Australia is running a three-part series called Building the Snowy. I've watched the first episode and it does have a hint of promotional series for the Snowy 2.0 program (laughs) to it, but still it has a lot of fantastic visual footage from the original Snowy scheme and I found that amazing to watch. Anyway, for those interested, it should be available on SBS On Demand for quite a while, I imagine. I'd also like to thank David S, Deborah T, Keith P, Christopher B, Janet K and Jordan H, whose contributions to the show over the last couple of months help keep it in production and ad-free. So thanks so much. Now let's turn our attention to Mariah Island, set just off the east coast of Tasmania. Mariah Island has a long and varied history from its original indigenous use, soon after Aboriginal people made their way to Tasmania, or Lutuita as they call it today, through to its early colonial use as a penal outpost and later for agricultural and industrial uses. Since 1971 it was designated as a national park, with an added calling as a refuge island, helping to protect a number of endangered or of concern species. Today it offers a truly interesting and beautiful destination for visitors. So let's start our story with a look at its history. According to the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre, there are no longer any living speakers of the original Tasmanian languages. However, through recordings, written records and oral histories, some indigenous language is being restored and we do know many of the original place names used for Tasmania and its regions and places. What we call Tasmania today was known by some Aboriginal groups as Trawana in one of the four probable original major languages, but today the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre suggests we use the name Lachuita, also a name used by its original inhabitants, living across what is these days an island. Of course, when those peoples first made their way south, around 40,000 years ago, it was still connected by a land bridge to the mainland being cut off by the rising sea levels around 12,000 years ago. 
The early European arrivals originally called it Van Diemen's Land. That name was changed to Tasmania as its era of transportation drew to a close in the 1850s. So a nice little rebrand there, allowing inhabitants and visitors to ignore that once embarrassing convict and colonisation stain associated with the old Van Diemen's Land name. Ryan suggests that when the British arrived to stay in 1803, there were between 6,000 and 8,000 Indigenous inhabitants across Lotuita. What we call Mariah Island today was known by the Oyster Bay people there, or Padarama people, consisting of 10 to 15 clans living on country in the mid and eastern regions, as Wulkula Wikiwina. Historian Lindell suggests that Wulkula Wikiwina was most likely the country of the Tyradema clan, and they would have stayed there for extended periods, living and gathering the island's useful resources for sharing and trading with others, and it would have been a most comfortable and bountiful part of their country. Abel Tasman first sighted Mariah Island in 1642, and it was Tasman that gave the island its European name, originally charted in Dutch as Mariah's Island, after the wife of Antony van Diemen, the governor of Batavia at the time. Hence the less usual pronunciation of Mariah rather than Maria. So members of the Tyrodim clans there would have seen sailing vessels passing by from time to time after 1642. Tobias Furno, commander of the adventure on Cook's second exploration of our region in 1773, may have sighted Mariah Island also but it's assumed that English captain John Henry Cox from HMS Mercury was the first European to explore the island, leading his men on to land there, and soon after having their first interaction with the Tyrodeme people. At first the locals kept their distance from the new arrivals, Cox noting there were, quote, evident marks of inhabitants, most of the large trees being hollowed out by fire so as to form a shelter from the weather, and great quantities of shells heaped about them, unquote. And he further noted that there were also huts of a similar design to those he'd seen elsewhere on the Tasmanian mainland, except that they were constructed on Mariah Island of bark rather than the leaves and branches they'd seen earlier. Staying several days to take on water and wood, they noticed smoke on the opposite side of the bay and they went to meet the locals. Lord wrote in his 1919 paper on the history of Mariah Island that the third mate approached the group, quote, alone and unarmed, and although he made every sign of friendship his fancy could suggest, they only mimicked his actions exactly and laughed heartily, but would not stay, unquote. <laughs> The following day they made contact again with a group of around 15 and recorded the Aboriginals as, quote, daubed with red ochre and behaving shyly, unquote, though they were able this time to give them gifts of biscuits and pen knives. They observed that the men carried long spears, had some permanent tattoos and scarring adorning their skin, along with the ochre daubed on their bodies and in their hair. While generally naked, he noted one man wore a small shell necklace and that the women wore cloaks and carried some kind of slings, perhaps for carrying their babies or other items. The stunning red ochre used was obtained from what was later called Bloodstone Point on the island, and it would have been a valuable commodity the clan could trade and share amongst the very clans of the Pardarama nation. Later, some men from the French explorer Bourdain's expedition, including Perron, also made landfall at Mariah Island in 1802. 
They recorded their observations, including drawings of the unusual canoes used there, made from bundles of reeds rather than the bark constructions they'd seen previously. And I'll place an image of those canoes on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. They noted seeing spears, which they imagined were for fishing, though the owners seemed to have made themselves scarce, and Bourdain's men strolled about the area without seeing any of the local inhabitants on that occasion. Of great interest were some bark burial huts or tombs they encountered, and which they inspected and sketched. These were constructions of upright bark covering cremated remains, and again I'll include one of their drawings on the episode webpage. Perron made contact with some of the Tyrodema people in the following days. When the ship's surgeon, poor old René Morsch, died, they actually buried him there on Mariah Island, quote, at the foot of a large eucalyptus against which a plate of lead was fixed, whereon was inscribed the sad particulars of his death, and the name Point Morsch was given to the name of the island where the remains of our unfortunate companion are deposited, unquote. So, at least the Tyrodema would afterwards have had their opportunity to witness and boggle over the odd funeral practices of the strange people that had visited, too. Archaeological investigations on Mariah Island have identified many shell middens and artefact scatters, and it's been noted that because of the varied and interesting geology of the island, most of the materials the Tyrodem people required could be sourced locally. There is evidence of their stone and ochre quarries along with hut depressions and built artefacts such as stone arrangements, indicating their long and successful custodianship of the island. Mariah Island provided many local food sources including seafood, game and vegetables. The environment was managed with regular burning to make it easier to travel through and to attract game to the resulting new growth for easier hunting. Perron's explorations around the island chronicled the geology and nature of the island as well as recording the surprising, quote, immense beds of kelp fringing the shores and the great shoals of dolphins and whales and the innumerable legions of seals, unquote. Uh-oh, <laughs> I've got a bad feeling about the future for those creatures when word gets out. <laughs> Indeed, as Perron and his fellow explorers were departing the area, they recorded seeing a small ship on its way to catch seals there. And so it had started. When Lady Franklin, the governor's wife, from episode 37, visited Darlington later, in 1838, and she noted the shores of the little settlement bay are strewed with whale blubber and bones. The smell of the whale blubber, and worse still the smell of putridity from the seaweed, made our walk along the sands to and from the dwelling house anything but agreeable. Sealers were reported to have slaughtered 2,000 fur seals on Mariah Island in January and February of 1805 alone. A whaler station was still operating at Whaler's Cove until the government moved them on, thinking them an escape conduit risk for the convicts that would soon be held in large numbers on Mariah Island. Lord noted, quote, Commerce was following quickly upon the heels of discovery, unquote, and the devastating impacts on both the wildlife and the lifestyle of the Tyrodim and other peoples of Luchuita was imminent. The ongoing disturbance, destruction and displacement began in earnest almost immediately afterwards. So while whalers and sealers made heavy use of the resources in the area, the final exploration visit to Mariah Island before the colonisation proper began occurred in 1816. 
a Parramatta-born son of a convict, Captain James Kelly, would visit and tell Commissioner Big in 1820 that, quote, the land is good on the western side and there are several lagoons of fresh water, unquote. And Kelly would go on nearly ten years later to help with the set-up of the government's new secondary penal station there on Mariah Island. Governor Arthur was keen to relieve the overcrowding and difficulties of the settlement at Macquarie Harbour, which we have spoken about in earlier episodes, the original secondary penal settlement of Van Diemen's Land. With an accessible shore, good anchorage, fresh water and, and a large sheltered site, they expected that the island would facilitate a natural penitentiary. And with flax, a highly desired commodity at that time, they also hoped it would prove a successful place to grow it, using the convicts, quote, whose cases were not of a sufficiently aggravated nature to be sent to Macquarie Harbour, unquote, as the labour force. Though it was to operate as a site for hard labour between 1825 and 1832, it was described as, quote, a halfway house between the extreme hard labour at Macquarie Harbour and a stint on the road or chain gang, unquote. Indeed, the commissariat clerk at Mariah Island wrote, quote, Mariah Island, upon the whole, is one of the sweetest spots in Van Diemen's Land, unquote. <laughs> so at least the convicts were encircled by pleasant surroundings, <laughs> rather less cold and brooding than Macquarie Harbour too. And Hughes, in The Fatal Shore, described the Mariah Island penal settlement as, quote, far milder than Macquarie Harbour, set up to receive convicts whose crimes are not so flagrant to nature. The convicts lucky enough to be sent to this sweetly idyllic place wove cloth and cobbled shoes, and although flogging and solitary confinement were common punishments, their life escaped the miseries of Macquarie Harbour, unquote. So while not considered as quite as harsh in climate or working conditions as other convict sites, the usual brutal punishments were still meted out when necessary, and like most other penal settlements, the labour-intensive timber cutting was a big part of convict work on Mariah Island. While the timber on the island proved unsuitable for shipbuilding, as they had been able to profitably do in Macquarie Harbour, it was felled for construction, etc., and land clearance, and good use was made of most natural resources locally, providing activities to keep the convicts busy, including preparing land for agricultural pursuits. The first penal settlement on Mariah Island, named Darlington, began operating with its first shipment of convicts arriving in March 1825 and several outstations were soon established across the island to accommodate the growing convict work gangs. Named Darlington after the Governor of New South Wales, its layout was designed to ensure the separation, and hence security, of the stores from the convicts, and to emphasise the graded status of the non-convict members of the community. Ever thus, the more important you were, the better the housing situation. Hundreds of thousands of bricks were made on the island and used to construct the buildings required, including the penitentiary and the commissariat store, which still survive today from that period. Workshops were set up around a mill stream diverted from a main creek near the settlement, where they established a mechanised textile factory. Some sources say the stream simply supplied water to the factory, others saying it powered the processes. The earthworks of the race and the pond can still be seen today, though no factory remains. There, they produced rough woolen cloth, the type used to clothe the ever-increasing convict population. Using wool spun into yarn at the Cascades female factory in Hobart and shipped to Mariah Island, which we briefly mentioned in episodes 26 and 7, the Convicts and Cascades episodes. 
So they were dyeing, weaving and sewing the wool cloth into what is known as slops, <laughs> the prison garments, and into blankets, with the off-cut fabric being fashioned into cleaning mops, apparently. Production approximated about 100 yards per week, valued at 8 shillings per yard, bringing a revenue of around 2,000 per annum. So approximately a quarter of a million Australian dollars today. The tailor's shop produced 300 prisoners' suits per year and the balance of the material was sent to Hobart. The fabric was described as, quote, stoutly woven of a close texture and very durable, particularly well suited for labourers' dress and travelling greatcoats, unquote. The cloth was coloured several different shades, the dye coming from liquid obtained from boiling down several woods and barks. Many convicts also worked as blacksmiths, tanners or shoemakers, or as carpenters, and in many other occupations that were required to build and run the developing facility, and to provide products that could be sold to fund the settlement. While the flax never really boomed, the wool fabric production was in full swing and proved to be financially successful. After tanning leather, the workshops for shoe production produced up to 4,000 pairs each year, also creating income to cover running costs. According to a report by the first Commandant of Darlington, the intended agriculture was also a priority. Wheat, barley, potatoes, peas, beans and tobacco and hops would be grown on the island. Indeed, this would be the first cultivation of hops in Tasmania and the convicts would be employed in clearing land, building fences, and in planting and tending the crops. Stone was quarried locally, and as I mentioned earlier, they manufactured their own bricks to construct the buildings required for the site. They also quarried and produced limestone, and undertook charcoal burning. And Morris also records other output of the island as including, quote, 200 mallets, 144 chair legs. <laughs> 150 stools, 60 spokes, 90 buckets, 20 tubs and 25 wheelbarrows, unquote. All very specific numbers and I'm not sure over what period of time they were produced but it certainly was a productive workstation. However, as a secure site for containing prisoners, Mariah Island was much less successful. Being girt by sea didn't cut it. <laughs> the watery enclosure of the surrounding sea, apparently not far enough from the main Tasmanian landmass, and it didn't prove to be much of a barrier to absconding prisoners. Escape was common, convicts using makeshift rafts or bark canoes to cross the water. Two years after the forbidding, isolated and secure site of secondary punishment at Port Arthur opened in 1830, most of Mariah Island's remaining convicts were relocated there, and Mariah Island as a secondary penal station was closed down in 1832, after only seven years in operation. The island was left with just a few private farming ventures operating for the following decade. When more progressive ideas on the management and treatment of convicts were being encouraged by Lord Stanley, a probation system came into being in 1839, and Mariah Island and its existing infrastructure once again became an attractive proposition for the authorities. Under the new regime, Darlington was to be occupied as a probation station in 1842, housing the less troublesome class of prisoner and used as an evaluation way station where convicts could work while being assessed, making their way up through the class rankings. When reaching first class, they might eventually be reassigned to work in the community or given a ticket of leave. 
The probation system, built on the early penitentiary system, in that both expected that, quote, punishment and reform could be achieved by separate confinement and a regime of hard labour, religious instruction and education. Both had followed the earliest assignment system where incoming convicts were simply assigned to work under a master in the community. That proved to be a bit of a lottery, relying on the convict to be reasonably compliant and hardworking and on the master to be reasonable. At best, it was very helpful economically for the masters and could facilitate early release for a compliant convict, but it was not always popular in Britain. Sprod wrote, quote, It was felt to be too inconsistent in its application, chiefly because the treatment assigned convicts received was more often determined by the character of their masters rather than the nature of their crimes. It could either be too harsh, little removed from slavery, or too lax with the convicts enjoying better physical conditions than they had left at home, and subject to little discipline, unquote. Well, I think that probably says more about the appalling conditions for the lower classes across the United Kingdom, perhaps, that exile across the world in a convict colony was a better life outcome than staying put in old blighty. Certainly, the powers that be wanted more reliable punishment and a better system for separating out the incorrigible felons from those that might reform. They needed a system that would be a formidable deterrent for the criminal classes still on British soil, so the Macquarie Harbour and Port Arthur penal stations might serve as deterrents for the hardest men and recidivists. Those with life sentences could still expect to be housed in such penal settlements. Others might be assessed and moved through the prisoner classifications that would have them working through a series of stages of religious instruction, incarceration and labour, each stage allowing more freedoms. After the appropriate time and assessment, and if good conduct was ongoing, such convicts could be granted a ticket of leave into the community to support themselves, or even be granted a full pardon. Your original crime and ongoing conduct would determine your progress through the system. In 1845, a second probation station was opened at Long Point, now called Point Lesseur, south of Darlington on the island. Although smaller than Darlington, it was still a substantial and largely independent settlement. A road was built from Darlington to access Point Lesseur, and the stone abutments of the bridge across the creek are still visible. The original structures were generally reused for this second occupation, but a major building program was also initiated and Tasmania Parks and Wildlife Service notes that most of the remaining structures on the island today date from this period of activity. The barn, the windmill and Miller's Cottage were built on the hillside overlooking the farmland. The Oast House was built and the hop gardens, which had been used during the first settlement, were extended. Limestone was even exported to Port Arthur in 1844-46, apparently for the construction of their flour mill and granary. So under the new probation system, newly arrived prisoners were classified according to their crimes and conduct, and then worked in clothing, shoemaking and carpentry workshops or at other tasks, such as timber getting and lime production, while they were assessed. But at this time, a major focus on Mariah Island was on agricultural production, maintaining over 400 acres of crops, and so many convicts would be working as farm labourers. During that final decade of transportation to Van Diemen's Land, the facilities at Mariah Island became quite overcrowded. Darlington housed the majority in a number of differing accommodations. Lord wrote that there were six large dormitories containing 66 men each, 20 huts of varying sizes holding 3 to 24 men each, and around 100 separate apartments. Over 600 prisoners across four classes. 
Housing all but the most incorrigible of convicts, Mariah Island had its share of the usual hanky thieves, of course. But as I discovered on a visit there a couple of years back, it also hosted a number of interesting men, considered political prisoners too. Most surprising for me when I came across their story was perhaps the Maori political prisoners who were sent there by the New Zealand authorities. I know very little of Aotearoa New Zealand's history really, though I do listen to and have recommended before History of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast by Thomas Rillstone, and I listen to the Radio New Zealand's The Aotearoa History Show just to get a bit of a handle on our neighbour's backstory. I know Polynesian peoples arrived at the uninhabited land of the Long White Cloud around 900 or so years ago prior to any European discovery. But to briefly get the context of the next bit of our story, Kristen Harmon, historian and author of Aboriginal Convicts, Australian Khoisan and Maori Exiles, which I have of course included in my episode reference list, describes a potted history from the beginning of British interest in New Zealand like this, quote, By the early 19th century, New Zealand was being unofficially colonised by convict absconders, timber getters, sealing gangs and whalers. Missionaries followed. It was not until the 1830s that Britain sought to formalise its relationship with New Zealand's Aboriginal people, culminating in the Crown and some Maori signing the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. Of course, that treaty is still contested by many Maori, but it's interesting that the British felt the need to try and reach such a treaty in New Zealand when they never made any such formal attempt with any Australian Aboriginals across our landmass. Aotearoa New Zealand was colonised in quite a different way to Australia, though, but the new arrivals there still had to liaise with the British government as their colonial overlords, and they also had to figure out a way to get the land they wanted from the Maori, the First Nations people of Aotearoa New Zealand. The New Zealand colonists and government authorities were forced to manage their interactions with the Maori in quite a different way to the way they managed displacing the original inhabitants and acquiring land in Australia. Still, even with more consultation and a differing level of respect for the cultural structures in place in Aotearoa, the British incapacity to comprehend indigenous relationships with land, the individuality of tribal structures, and cultural differences in general made what they imagined as a straightforward purchase, that is, moving ownership of land into colonial hands, was a very difficult and quite a different proposition to transferring land titles in Old England. In the end, though, might was made right. The colonists wanted the land and the Maori were expected to negotiate and were made to give it over. When the various agreements and treaties that the British thought was sound became points of contention, Military might was put behind the white settler claims, and various Maori tribes had their own equivalent of the frontier wars, with the settlers colonising under the New Zealand Company and directly with the British authorities. One of a number of confrontations between the Maori and the Pakia, that's the white settling Aotearoa, was the Te Rangihaete resistance, or Hutt Valley campaign, which occurred in May of 1846. Now, as you're already aware from previous episodes, I have no skills in pronunciation of non-straightforward English language words, but as always, I'll just do my best. My apologies to the New Zealanders listening then. Ngati Toa and Ngati Haue Tirangi warriors, led by Whanganui chief Tirangi Haieta, undertook an action in the Hutt Valley, which resulted in the death of six British soldiers. In response, the authorities arrested the Maori tribal leader and held him for many months without trial. In August, the British soldiers managed to capture seven more Whanganui warriors involved, including Hohepa, Te Umaroa, 
Ti Waratiti, Tikometi, Matayo Tikiaki, Topai, Mataumi, and Tiraui. Disagreements over the land purchases had been simmering for many months prior to the May attack. Diplomacy had been attempted, but it was impossible to assuage both parties with their competing claims on land in the Hutt Valley. As tensions rose, the authorities knew they were in for a fight. Harmon notes that British military reinforcements were even called in from the nearby Australian colonies. This was not an arrangement between countries, of course, as it might be today if required, but was the British moving their chess pieces from one colony to another to support the Crown. Governor Gray had extended the martial law he'd imposed around Wellington in April, earlier in the campaign, to the wider Hutt region. Harmon suggests that, given the context of the war that these Maori men were captured in, they should have been treated as prisoners of war, that is, held while the war was active, but returned to their homes once hostilities had ceased. Instead, Gray was keen for these men to be made an example of, to be tried and severely punished, acting as a great deterrent to others considering renewing the fight. And so, rather than responding to their behaviour as an act of war, he treated them as murderous criminals, rebels murdering British soldiers and acting against Queen Victoria and the rule of British law. By the time the Maori warriors were captured in August, Grey considered the Hutt Valley Uprising settled. Now all that was left was to make an example of them. They would be tried on charges of rebellion in October. The chief arrested earlier was to remain in Auckland for a separate trial, but the other men were to face court, charged with, quote, having been taken in arms and in open rebellion against the Queen's sovereign authority and government of New Zealand, unquote, along with a few additional related charges. While they had an interpreter present, it was unlikely they completely understood what was being instigated and they were given no legal representation. In what was always going to be a fait accompli, they were, of course, found guilty, though mercifully not sentenced to hang but rather to be, quote, transported as felons for the term of their natural lives, unquote. Two of the warriors, Matthew Tikiaki and Topai, remained in Auckland, as Gray wanted them to testify in other cases. But the others, Hohepa Ti Umaroa, Ti Waratiti, Ti Kumete, Matai Umi and Ti Rahui, were soon shipped off to Van Diemen's Land in October of 1846. Harmon notes that amongst his fellow warriors, six-foot-tall Ti Umara, already a Nagati Hua man of high standing, boldly adorned with his as-yet-unfinished face moko, or facial tattoo, on the left side of his face. Something very exotic and interesting for the Europeans. But then they were all men of great interest to many in Hobart on their arrival. Initially, they were to be sent to Port Arthur, the notorious site of secondary punishment, and to hold those sentenced to life. Though as natives, rather than white men, the Maori warriors were expected to be housed there separately from the other convicts. Their sentence was to serve as a harsh deterrent to other Maori keen on continuing the fight. But when they arrived in Van Diemen's Land in November, dressed in their traditional Maori clothing, such as their impressive kakao cloaks, there was great interest and even consternation at their plight by the Hobart locals. As Harmon put it in one of her articles, quote, Hobart's colonists loudly disapproved of their New Zealand neighbours' treatment of Indigenous people. This is ironic given the Tasmanians' own near-genocidal war against Australian Aboriginal people, unquote. Some there went so far as to suggest the colonisation of New Zealand itself was unjust, quote, an act by which the British name and character were tarnished, unquote. 
Some wrote that the greatest defence of the Maori warriors, quote, seems to have been the defence of their country against what, with erring views, they conceived to be foreign aggression, unquote. The men themselves insisted, quote, they were only fighting those who came against their country and said they had not committed murder, unquote, as we know it. So it's interesting that many in Hobart considered the Maori men hard done by. Certainly, no such quarter was given to the Australian Aboriginals when they attempted to defend their country across Tasmania or on the mainland. The official and public response to any resistance there was lethal, with survivors swept off their country into missions as virtual prisoners for life. Harmon notes that the Mary convicts were admired by the Vandemonians as warriors, but also they were patronisingly considered as naive, as children of nature. Actually, this was perhaps a fortunate thing for the men involved, as there was great concern about the corrupting influences they'd be subject to in a place like Port Arthur, full of recidivist and incorrigible convicts, and so they spent some time incarcerated in Hobart while the authorities reconsidered their fates, some perhaps wondering if a pardon might be forthcoming from London. Unusually then for convicts, in Hobart they were kept separated from the other prisoners and were provided with interpreters and given regular religious instruction. While there, various artists painted and drew Te Umaroa's portrait, as well as his companions, and I'll place a few of those images on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. With Port Arthur and Norfolk Island soon ruled out as suitable locations for their incarceration, it was decided the Maori prisoners would be moved to Mariah Island in December of 1846, which had by then reopened to operate as a convict probation station. On Mariah Island, they would be housed separately to the main convict population and given an overseer who could speak their language and provide emotional and religious support. Indeed, they were pretty much granted, quote, all the freedom enjoyed by holders there of a ticket of leave, unquote. This would then allow them to be considered for a pardon should London approve it. Certainly, the five Maori warriors would be experiencing very different conditions to the standard criminal convict so it was clear they were seen by the British authorities as a different class of prisoner. They would have their own overseer, one John Jennings Imray, who had lived some time in Nelson, New Zealand, and was, quote, able to afford them every facility and advantage of religious and moral instruction, unquote. Fortunately, they did all get along well enough, and he and his family proved to be good companions for the Maori men during their stint on Mariah Island. Around the time of their arrival in Darlington, the convict population was probably up to about 400 men, many put to work cultivating wheat, hops, potatoes, flax and vegetables, and in manufacturing baskets and rope mats and so on. Most convicts worked 12-hour days and had classes and religious instruction available for much of the remainder of their waking hours. The Maori prisoners did not have to adhere to the usual rigid work conditions. But Imre did ensure there were tasks for them to undertake to keep busy and to contribute, beginning with constructing the wattle and daub thatched roof buildings for their own accommodation and for Imre's family needs. Their time was also spent hunting and fishing, and later they built gardens for their own produce. They also spent time in reading, writing and Bible studies. During those months, some of the men suffered injuries and illnesses, but it was Te Umaroa who seemed to be declining most severely in health in the new year. By June, the doctors were suggesting he was suffering from tuberculosis, and indeed on July 18th, he died. Imre conducted a funeral at Mariah Island Cemetery the following day, the small public cemetery rather than the convict site, and the service was conducted in Te Umaroa's native language. 
Wilkie suggests the impressive and beautiful headstone for Te Umaroa that we can still see there today was erected later by an anonymous benefactor. The headstone has inscriptions in both Maori and English. All the arrangements, Harmon reminds us, were extremely respectful and highly unusual measures for a deceased convict. His companions, as we might imagine, were distraught, but were obliged to continue their life as prisoners on the island. But Tio Moroa's death prompted more correspondence between the authorities across the seas, and in the end, owing particularly to the shaky legal issues related to their treatment under martial law, in February of 1848, the British decided to pardon the surviving prisoners. Van Diemen's Land then-Lieutenant Governor Dennison noted, quote, I was better pleased in being able to repatriate the remaining four Maori to their homeland, inasmuch as one of the five had been carried off by consumption a few months since, and the others had for some time evinced symptoms of despondency which before long would have caused them to follow their companion, unquote. Now, while I commend the authorities on their consideration and rethink here, and on their apparent compassion, I'm just absolutely amazed by the complete lack of recognition as to what was happening to our own Tasmanian Aboriginal people, rounded up, confined against their will, and dying in great numbers on Flinders Island during this same period. Amazing. Travelling with the Imre family, the surviving Maori warriors were shipped out in March to be returned to their homes as free men. Harmon also mentions that Gray made arrangements for any future Maori prisoners that did not involve transportation. So this did not necessarily mark the end of the uprisings on Aotearoa, just that we no longer played a role in their incarceration and punishment, here over the ditch. The Maori warriors were not the only political prisoners hosted at Mariah Island during its operational days. The Australian colonies were also the exile destination for a great number of Irish political prisoners too. One of the more well-known Irishmen held there for a time was perhaps William Smith O'Brien, described in the Australian Dictionary of Biography as a Protestant Irish nationalist. Coming from rather elite Irish stock, his father, Sir Edward O'Brien, was a baronet, no less, and Smith O'Brien himself was an Irish representative in the British Parliament. He seems to have begun his political career as quite the conciliatory actor amongst the many varied political factions in Ireland at the time, supporting both Catholic emancipation and the British-Irish Union. But as the years progressed, by the late 1830s and early 1840s, he had hardened his views and become more radical in his support for various independence movements, particularly after the devastations of the famines visited on the Irish. In 1848, he was one of the organisers of the failed Young Island Rebellion and was arrested and charged with high treason, escaping the historically gruesome death that the statute books allowed for such traitors. His sentence was mercifully commuted, possibly with the aid of a massive petition calling for clemency. Instead, he was to be transported for life and he found himself in Van Diemen's Land with a number of his cronies in October of 1849. There, he was immediately offered a ticket of leave, owing to his social stature, one imagines, but he refused to cooperate with the authorities, and instead he was sent to Darlington Station on Mariah Island to serve his sentence, albeit living in his own small cottage there and spending his early days reading Nicholas Nickleby. <laughs> he recorded some details of an escape that he attempted. Quote, on Monday last, the 12th of August, I made an attempt to escape from this detestable colony. 
Having learned that a small vessel which was in the habit of bringing goods to Mariah Island was about to proceed from Hobart towards California and that she would touch at Mariah Island, I resolved to obtain a passage in her, unquote. But alas, someone in the chain of escape lagged and the authorities were alerted and he was forced to remain in the detestable colony after all. Indeed, he was about to experience mega detestable being sent afterwards to the more secure penal site of Port Arthur. Though not really. Even there he was granted his own separate accommodation and was treated more like a guest than a prisoner. So his experiences would have been in no way typical of a convict there. The building he resided in at Port Arthur still remains and was actually used as a youth hostel there in the 1970s, the faint outline of the IYH triangle still being visible on the gable end wall until just a decade or two back. In 1850 he finally agreed to the parole conditions offered and moving to New Norfolk where he spent almost four years living there comfortably in Elwyn's Hotel. In 1854, O'Brien was released on conditional pardon that he never returned to the United Kingdom, and he spent the next few years in Europe and touring with his family. Two years later, he was granted an unconditional pardon, and, like only a minuscule number of prisoners passing through the transportation system, was actually able to return to his home in Ireland in July of 1856. As always, wealth and status helped the cause. Another political prisoner of sorts was much less known Welshman named John Hughes, and as per my earlier confession, I'm afraid I couldn't possibly manage attempting his name in Welsh. <laughs> Sorry, Janine. Hughes was transported for his involvement in a series of uprisings known as the Rebecca Riots. I had not been aware of this particular movement in Wales, but a couple of years back Janine Marshallwood got in touch to tell me about her book called No Ordinary Convict, a Welshman called Rebecca. Researching her ancestors' story, she recounts this rather unusual political movement and Hughes's story in particular, and I will of course include her fascinating book's bibliographic details in the reference list too, if you'd like to follow up further. The Welsh Rebecca riots were common mostly between 1839 and 1843 in the rural west of Wales. They began as a series of protest actions undertaken by local farmers and agricultural workers in response to the tolls being charged to use the roads. They were known as Rebecca riots because many of the rioters disguised themselves as women. Each group was coordinated by their leader, known as Rebecca, while the rest were called her daughters. It's so bizarre. Where the odd idea originated is still murky, but Marshall Wood suggests a couple of origin stories, including one explanation that had Thomas Rees desiring to disguise himself borrowing clothes from Big Becca or Rebecca, and he was thereafter laughingly called Rebecca. Other leaders then adopted the costume too. But another explanation for the concept of Rebecca and her daughters is likely to have been inspired by a passage from the Bible, from Genesis 24.60. And they blessed Rebecca and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gates of those who hate them. Unquote. Well, I don't really understand that, but Marshall Woods suggests that, while completely out of context, they adopted a reading of the verse that saw the toll gates owned by the hated ruling classes and their local Rebecca's were taking action against them. Still totally bizarre to my mind, but I guess a group of burly women on horseback attacking the lackeys of their oppressors would certainly cause a media sensation, even in an era of Chartism and regular rights across Great Britain. So maybe it was an excellent tactic. 
Toll gates imposed by the English Parliament were a costly expense for small farmers who had to use the roads to take their crops and animals to market and to collect lime to work their farms. In protest and desperation, they banded together, disguised themselves and attacked the toll booths, destroying not only the gates but also the toll houses. Such raids were generally carried out at night and usually without excessive violence to the toll keepers, allowing them to remove their personal goods from the dwelling before they torched it. Well, in the early days at least. But as their livelihoods and way of lives were further impacted by additional regulation, causing more distress, their protests often included other grievances, including the new poor laws, increasing rents, and <laughs> landlords 2023 take note, <laughs> and the objections to the compulsory tithes demanded by the Church of England, an official organisation that many of the Baptist and independent nonconformist Welsh community had no affinity with. Most sources will suggest the Rebecca riots and the escalating violence in the main were the direct result of the dire poverty gripping the farming communities of South West Wales in particular, and them seeing themselves as victims of tyranny and oppression. Either way, Queen Victoria was not amused. The government had reached a decision that the movement must be shut down and troops were sent to firmly take control, intending to capture and punish the leaders. Anyway, you can chase up more on the Rebecca Rides yourself if that's of interest. Marshall Wood's ancestor, the well-educated John Hughes, had been a Rebecca from Carmarthenshire in South Wales. So a leader and a highly active participant in the actions. Hughes and a few of his companions were taken into custody at Pontedulius, where Hughes was leading more than 100 men in an action against a tollgate there. An informant had alerted the authorities and Captain Napier and his men were hiding nearby ready to break up the protest and arrest the ringleaders. A shot was apparently fired by the Rebeccaites and Napier fired back, hitting Hughes's horse and unseating him. In the resulting fracas, another constable fired on Hughes, shattering a bone in his arm. The mob dispersed but Hughes and two others were eventually arrested and were charged with disturbance of the peace and, quote, feloniously and riotously assembling and beginning to demolish, pull down and destroy a toll house, unquote. Hughes was additionally charged with firing on Napier, quote, with intent and a forethought to kill and murder him, unquote. The jury returned a guilty verdict to all charges, but interestingly added that they hoped Hughes would receive merciful consideration. It's hard to judge if the sentence was considered merciful, but his companions were sentenced to seven years' transportation, while Hughes, as a leader, was given a 20-year sentence. Welsh convicts in Australia were a relative rarity, only 1% in 1840, and John and his comrades were sent on to the probation station at Mariah Island at probably its most crowded era. Marshall Wood describes his probable routine as rising at dawn with the ringing of a bell, washing, shaving, changing, before being mustered for inspection, prayers and for the day's orders. Work began at 5.30am in summer, later in winter. They toiled until 6pm, mustered again for prayers and were herded off to classes, including reading, writing and arithmetic, as well as religious instruction and more advanced classes where appropriate. They might have a free hour between 9 and 10 before lights out. Well, that's a life of regimentation, isn't it? She also notes their daily rations on Mariah Island, including, quote, 
one pound, that's 450 grams, of fresh meat or salt beef, one and a half pounds of flour, half a pound of vegetables, and half an ounce of salt, unquote, noting that for many prisoners such rations may have been better than the food they could afford before their incarceration. Though Hughes was probably one of the better off growing his own food in rural Wales, Hughes was literate and able to correspond with his family back home, and he appears to be pretty positive about his plight. Whether genuine in his feelings or to spare his family worry, he reported, quote, The scenery here is delightful, unquote, and he mentioned the many birds, animals and plants he found different and interesting. His companions were moved out of the probation station after a year because of their shorter sentence, but Hughes had to serve a second one, fortunately with little additional trouble. Writing to his parents, who had been continually petitioning for his release, he said, quote, I am hopeful, my loving parents, that you now have come to terms with my unfortunate situation. I'm making myself as comfortable as possible in my present situation, unquote. When his probation had been served, he received his pass, allowing him to take employment in the community in the Bothwell area, finally gaining a conditional pardon in May of 1857. By then, 38 years old, he was considered a free member of society, except he was not allowed to leave Tasmania. Though he never returned home to his beloved family, failing to receive a pardon that his Welsh family continued to request, and experiencing a few hiccups with the law during his remaining time under the direction of the penal system, he seems to have made a fair life for himself, settling finally in the northwest of Tasmania near Stanley. So like every other convict site, no doubt, Mariah Island had its share of interesting people with noteworthy stories, and it remains today an attractive place to visit, to immerse yourself in that history and imagine what life might have been like. As transportation reduced and eventually ceased, the convict settlements across Van Diemen's Land were once again closed down, and Mariah Island moved into a new phase of activity. Small-scale farming continued, the private ventures mostly turning to less labour-intensive sheep grazing, and it's said that several Chinese fishermen ran a small but lucrative abalone or mutton fish business around the area today called uh, Chinaman's Bay for some reason, <laughs> supplying their catch to Chinese miners on the Victorian goldfields. Farming on an island was not always easy though. One sheep farmer, who also grew wheat at Long Point, as it was then, recalled his difficulties dealing with the local seals coming up from the water's edge and rolling on his wheat crop. Tasmania's Department of Environment described Mariah Island as having a temperate maritime climate. In 1884, Italian silk merchant Angelo Giulio Diego Bernacci was so impressed by the island's mild climate and good soils that he believed he could create there a Mediterranean paradise. Described as ambitious, entrepreneurial and an excellent self-promoter, Bernacci secured a 10-year lease on Mariah Island at one shilling a year, beginning on January 1st, 1885, though the lease was conditional on him spending not less than £5,000 on development within five years. He intended to set up a sericulture venture there, and that's my new word learned for this episode, sericulture, the cultivation of silkworms to produce silk. How amazing. I wouldn't have thought of Tassie as being a place suitable for silkworms, but there you go. And so he planted hundreds of mulberry trees for his intended silkworms. According to a report presented to the Tasmanian Legislative Council, by 1886, the 400 white mulberry trees, Morris Elba, were doing well, and the silkworm eggs were to be imported from Lombardy. 
He also planted orchards for fruit production and 50,000 vines from the De Castella vineyards in Victoria, with the first grapes being picked in May of 1886. Bonacci planned to produce a lighter wine similar to that consumed in continental Europe, claiming this would be, quote, more conducive to temperance and health than the heady and doctored alcoholic compounds, unquote, then consumed in Tasmania. <laughs> it was a gamble, hoping to sell wine to the local market at a time when there was little demand for or appreciation of cool climate wines, and the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, Mr. Bonacci is making a bold venture, seeing that the cultivation of the vine has never been tried in this colony on an extensive scale and on scientific principles, unquote. And Bonacci saw tourism potential in his Summer Isle of Eden too, comparing it to the south of France and Italy for its natural beauty and mild climate. Hmm, well, it's still Tassie. <laughs> that might have been a bit optimistic. But he already had plans underway for the construction of a grand hotel to operate as a pleasure resort and sanatorium. After his first year, he invited many influential people, including parliamentarians and members of the press, to view his progress and, quote, inspect the improvements, the additions and the innovations that he had effected, unquote. As the SS Warrantina drew into Darlington Bay, Bonacci welcomed them all with an extravagant fireworks display of rockets, squibs and crackers and with coloured lights, Quote, the path leading up the hill to Bonacci's residence, overlooking the settlement and the bay, was adorned with coloured Venetian lanterns, leading the guests to an al fresco champagne dinner on the veranda. Unquote. Well, that certainly sounds like a party. And it must have made an impression. The following year, he floated his Mariah Island Company, the vehicle for his planned enterprises there, raising the healthy capital sum of £250,000. The other additional ventures being undertaken or envisaged on the island included sheep and cattle farming, cement production using the island's limestone, marble quarrying, timber and fishing. Panachi was the resident managing director of the Mariah Island Company, along with six Melbourne and two Tasmanian directors. Bonacci's focus would soon move away from the luxury industries of silk, wine and tourism that he had already set in motion on the island towards a potentially more lucrative opportunity, producing Portland cement using the local limestone. At the time, Portland cement, or general purpose cement, was not manufactured in Australia and imports from Britain were extremely expensive, so this looked to be a good bet. With all his improvements and planned industry, a petition from the Mariah Island Company in July of 1888 requested the government install a submarine cable to improve communications for them. <laughs> and Bonacci wanted Darlington des designated as a point of entry, enabling him to collect customs revenue. <laughs> he also wanted a bill passed which would make Mariah Island its own municipality so that the company would no longer have to pay rates to Spring Bay. <laughs> You've got to give him points for trying. Bonacci renamed the settlement San Diego, and by 1888 it was thriving, with a local population of around 250. A number of convict buildings had been demolished during this period and the bricks reused in other constructions, while many others were brightened up and repurposed. His grand hotel, built on the hillside behind the family residence, opened that year. Built in the Swiss chalet style, it was intended to operate as a health resort, like the famous spa hotels of Europe he would have been familiar with. Its European sophistication was to be its appeal. A very large construction, the Grand Hotel boasted 30 bedrooms. 
billiard and dining saloons, a smoking room and drawing rooms, and was expected to attract holidaymakers desiring both an attractive holiday resort and health spa in the midst of Bonacci's idyllic island. The Mercury reported, quote, The grounds were to be laid out in beautiful ornamental gardens with several jet fountains and grottos, the whole giving a most fairy-like aspect, unquote. Staff would include French cooks and Swiss and Italian maids, quote, attired in the costumes of their native lands, ministering to the wants and comforts of guests, unquote. It was an expensive and ambitious undertaking, considering its relative isolation from the moneyed centres of Melbourne and Sydney, their populations less sophisticated European and more new money, old convicts, successful navigators of gold rushes and wealthy pastoralists. It would need to be quite the drawcard to bring such people to the Grand Hotel on Mariah Island in profitable numbers. The Coffee Palace was also completed that year, situated within the old footprint of the demolished single-cell accommodation block, described again by the Mercury as, quote, a spacious, well-lighted and well-furnished temperance hotel, unquote. It was intended to provide visitors accommodation and refreshment, comfortable though less sumptuous than the Grand Hotel. Certainly there was furious construction taking place across the settlement at that time. A row of workers' cottages, known as the Twelve Apostles, were built for workers and their families, and six terraced cottages for the vineyard overseers were constructed from the demolished convict buildings that year. Chauvel records that the single working men on site were housed in the remaining penitentiary accommodation block and would have used the mess hall next door for their meals. Other convict buildings on the complex were repurposed as a store and shopkeeper's residence, a post office, a bakery and a butcher's shop. When Melbourne hosted the Centennial International Exhibition in August of 1888, the Tasmanian Pavilion displayed Mariah Island's commodities and produce with pride. The Tasmanian Mail wrote, quote, Things are on the move here. Signor Bonacci's collection for the Melbourne exhibition is a grand one, comprising of marble, granite and freestone, lime, cement and timber, bark, wine and brickwork, unquote. His Avignon wine and a selection of Mariah Island stone both received third prize, though one assumes in vastly differing categories. <laughs> Bonacci produced a promotional pamphlet for the Mariah Island exhibit, which, as I suggested before, may have included a little poetic license, describing it as a summer isle of Eden. He optimistically compared his island to, quote, the south of France and Italy for its natural beauty, mild climate, and the luxury and convenience of a resort comparable to the most fashionable establishments on the Riviera, perfect for consumptive patients, unquote. Bonacci was to take his Mariah Island display to the Paris exhibition of 1889, but in the end he didn't do so. Ever the consummate promoter, he built up the island's reputation in Australia and overseas, and frequent newspaper coverage in the 1880s and 90s used terms such as King Diego and His Most Amiable Majesty. <laughs> the Australian Dictionary of Biography noted Mariah Island was then dubbed the Salon of Australasia and the Tasmanian Eden during that Bonacci heyday. In 1888, the now high-profile Bonacci was appointed a Justice of the Peace, and between 1889 and 92, he was a municipal councillor at Spring Bay, his family having relocated to Louisville there, just north of Tribuna on the coast opposite Mariah Island. He had been a visionary, an energetic entrepreneur, a genuine champion of the potential of the island and of all the business that could be generated there. 
I think he sincerely thought he could pull it all off and build a successful empire. But sadly, it didn't materialise as he'd hoped. Despite the optimism of the first few years and the massive injection of capital, many enterprises failed. The initial viticulture and sericulture ventures were not a success. While early reports seemed positive, wine production was poor and the mulberry trees failed to thrive, quote, owing to the saltiness of the atmosphere being too close to the seashore, unquote. Sadly, the Grand Hotel never fulfilled its promise either, attracting too few guests. Despite an 1890s brochure encouraging holidaymakers to consider Mariah Island as the Riviera of Australia, where, quote, the invalid may laze the hours away and, book in hand, become intoxicated with the splendour of the scenery and the sounds of the unceasing sea. Here may the sportsman roam and fill his bag. Here may the angler bait his hooks with great results. Here may the tourist contemplate the history of the centuries, unquote. Still not enough tourists could be coaxed across the water to make the destination a success. The approaching depression of the 1890s would not have helped. In 1892, Bonacci's Mariah Island Company was voluntarily liquidated. Bonacci had made good headway setting up the cement works by 1890, constructing tramways to deliver the limestone for processing and to the jetty for transport. This venture continued to produce cement on the island under the Land Development and Cement Company of Tasmania Limited. But only five of the planned 20 lime kilns were built, and owing to poor management, rising transport costs and the economic depression, even the cement business failed. In 1896, the cement company also went into receivership. The hopeful and lively San Diego once again became Darlington, <laughs> pretty much a ghost town, left for the few farmers and fishermen that would continue to inhabit the island. Though for a while, Rosa Atkins ran a boarding house in the former Coffee Palace, catering to small numbers of tourists who would visit the island out of curiosity. Bernacci spent the next decade or so in Melbourne and in London and continued to dream of what might have been on Mariah Island. In 1918, he returned to Australia as the director of National Portland Cement Limited, which had an authorised capital of £600,000 to resurrect the cement works there. One source claimed that Sir John Monash, the renowned soldier and engineer and namesake of Melbourne's Monash University, was also one of its directors. Chevelle notes that according to its 1920 prospectus, Mariah Island had, quote, ideal conditions for attracting employees. A. Numerous comfortable residences already erected and owned by the company. B. Rich soil for the production of foodstuffs. C. Cheap and abundant supply of fuel for domestic purposes. D. Copious freshwater reticulated dwellings. E. Abundance of fish in coastal waters. F. Climate temperate and congenial, unquote. Well, once again, we might be hearing the optimistic assessment of Bonacci in that description. It did prove attractive, though, and labourers returned to the island to begin building the new cement works. By 1923, a new 190-metre, or that 620-foot pier, had been constructed, and other infrastructure, including the 61-metre or 200-foot-high chimney stack of reinforced concrete, were in place. Machinery worth over £125,000 had been imported from Copenhagen and London. Darlington quickly repopulated with 500 or so residents. Social and sports clubs were formed and a school was established for the employees' children. Darlington received an electrical supply for the first time. 
The cement works were said to be state-of-the-art, technologically in advance of any other in the Southern Hemisphere, and the works were officially opened in February of 1924. Bonacci, though, had become unwell and returned to Melbourne where he died just a year later, on 12th of March 1925, aged 72. He was buried in the Brighton Cemetery. Though he may have been happy in his last days to see his vision achieved with the opening of the Mariah Island complex, prospects for his cement works at that stage looking good, it was not to achieve long-term success. In what should have been an entirely predictable problem, much of the limestone around Darlington included many fossils, which meant it was unsuitable for making high-quality cement. The 30,000 tonnes they expected to produce in 1924-25 financial year, for example, had to be more than doubled to become financially viable. Transport costs continued to increase. By 1927, operations were shaky. By 1929, the company faced a loss of £200,000 with existing additional debts of £160,000. The country was about to face the Great Depression and they were unlikely to recover. Coal and cement production had entirely ceased by 1930. Mariah Island once again became the preserve of a few farming families. Tasmania Parks and Wildlife Service suggests between 1930 and 1965 there were occasional visits by tourists and that commercial fishing out of Darlington occurred into the 1960s. They note that even some limestone quarrying occurred but the coming decade was to see Mariah Island evolve into a very interesting public asset. In 1962, with so much land clearing taking place on Tasmania's main landmass, reducing native forest habitat, the then Animals and Birds Protection Board recommended that Mariah Island be proclaimed as a reserve for the conservation of endangered animal species. Perhaps surprisingly, this fantastic idea was taken up and the acquisition of land began in 1965. In 1968, the first ranger was appointed and the introduction of native animals began. In 1971, the island was declared a sanctuary under the Animals and Birds Protection Board. This period would see the introduction of animals not necessarily indigenous to the island, but which were at risk of extinction within their own original habitat. It soon afterwards came under the management of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Some sheep grazing continued for a while, but by 1981 all sheep were removed from the park. From the late 1960s, various species of fauna were released onto the island, including mammals and birds such as Cape Barren geese, forester kangaroos and Flinders Island wombats. The endangered 40-spotted pardalo was brought in, along with the vulnerable swift parrot and hooded plover. Other introduced species included the brush-tailed possum, Tasmanian betong, eastern barred bandicoot, southern brown bandicoot and the Tasmanian native hen. Emus were also brought in. <laughs> Uh-oh. Some animals and birds did well. Others, like the emu, did a little too well, overpopulating and pushing out other species from the closed environment and had to be removed. The introduction of species not indigenous to the park, particularly the grazing animals, which cause all sorts of environmental problems, is now viewed as out of keeping with the concept of a national park and has been discontinued. Parks and Wildlife Service policy now is to remove introduced species where practicable. Today, Mariah Island National Park operates under a comprehensive plan for the park which includes care and conservation of the appropriate flora and fauna, as well as preserving the built environment and offering visitors insight and access across the island. 
though, as usual for public assets, a lack of funds always restricts the ability to undertake all the needed works. It is a low-key, rustic destination offering a range of spectacular natural and historical sites, and the wildlife there abounds. You can barely look in any direction without encountering wombats, kangaroos, geese and so on. Visitors can catch the ferry over from Trayabuna for the day. More intrepid visitors can book a basic camping site via the park service and stay overnight. And for the lucky few, you might even be able to book accommodation in the rather spartan bunk rooms on the original penitentiary building, making use of the nearby mess hall for food preparation, eating and recreation, for just a tiny taste of that convict experience. At least the bunk rooms come with a wood heater. Other services and facilities are very basic. In fact, I'm not sure if the ablutions block even has hot water. And at the time of writing, no grocery or other food or camping supplies are available on the island. Visitors must be entirely self-sufficient, bringing all their needs with them. There are toilet blocks and open shelters in the camping area, and public barbecues actually at Darlington for use. Certainly visitors would be advised to check the current status of facilities before heading out there. The historical remnants are a great draw card for visitors and proved to be a great highlight for me, though the natural scenery and the fascinating geological formations really appeal too. You can explore many sites around Darlington and nearby on a day visit via the many walking paths. These can be walked along rustic tracks or you can take or hire bicycles there if you don't mind a bit of rough riding. Again, visitors would be advised to check availability and the status of the bike situation. No other vehicles are allowed on the island except the necessary rangers' vehicles. Mariah Island is virtually two islands joined by a low, narrow isthmus. The peak of Mount Mariah, situated to the centre of the northern section and rising about 700 metres, can be reached from Darlington via a six-hour return walk. A four-hour return will see you reach the outcrops called Bishop and Clark, peaks at the island's northeast. The Painted Cliffs can be reached just to the south of Darlington Settlement, just around the beachhead, and consist of the most beautiful coloured striped cliffs made up of Triassic sandstone layers washed down for millions of years from the Bishop and Clark Mountains and compressed. I'll post a few photos on the website. They really are mesmerising and such an amazing contrast to the coastal offering on the other side of the island. The cliffs nearby and beach area around the old limestone works are littered with rocks full of fossils, including clams, sea fans, corals, scallop shells and sea lilies, deposited around 300 million years ago. Apparently there is a blowhole on the eastern shore and submarine granite sea caves, which are considered of outstanding significance in Tasmania, according to Parks. Though, I guess you might need scuba gear to appreciate that. <laughs> Today, two full buildings from the first convict period remain standing at the main settlement, most notably the penitentiary block and associated buildings, later used to house labourers and now used as bookable rustic bunkhouse accommodation, and the commissariat store, which stands at the exit from the jetty and houses a park's office, where you can get information on your arrival. Park staff may conduct guided tours of Darlington during busy periods. There are remnants and ruins of other buildings dotted across the settlement areas, and while I don't have a citation confirming, I am assuming the brickworks and kiln remnants are those from the first period too. 
Other significant remains from a second convict occupation, the probation period, include the cemetery, opened in 1825, with the last burial there as late as 1942, the site mostly containing now unmarked graves, though a few stone memorials remain, most notably that marking the now empty grave of Hohepa Te Umaroa, the inscription written in both Te Reo Māori and in English. Harmon reminds us, as the years went by, that Tasmanians were keen to forget and ignore their convict history. For a long time, graveyards and monuments from that era were simply left to the ravages of time. On Mariah Island, I think the convict cemetery was completely reclaimed by nature, and no action was taken to conserve the civilian cemetery or any remaining mon monuments until the island came under the care of parks. A fence was apparently then re-erected around the civilian cemetery, and it was cleared of brambles and weeds. By the 1980s, many more people were interested in their convict genealogy and our history in general, and there were some from Aotearoa, New Zealand, with a special interest in the Maori Memorial. Harman noted that also by this time, indigenous groups around the world were beginning to make progress in negotiating repatriation for their ancestors' remains, taken and held in various repositories and places around the world, and some felt it was time for Hohipa's Te Ilmaroa's remains to be brought home to his country. Locating descendants, Te Ilmaroa's people, and after three years' negotiation between our now separate countries, New Zealand agreed to cover the costs, and six of his tribal elders assumed responsibility for retrieving and returning his remains to his homeland. Harmon wrote, with the appropriate cultural ceremony, quote, on Thursday 4th of August 1988, a long narrow coffin with faint lettering beginning with H was exposed. The Kaumatua had found their tipuna. Te Umaroa was laid to rest on the 8th in his ancestral country at Roma Cemetery in Jerusalem on the Fanganui River, one of the repatriation parties saying, quote, his long 140 year wait has finally come to an end, unquote. You can still identify the settlement Mill Lead and the Reservoir, the Mess Room, Miller's Cottage Barn, nearby Oast House, Chapel and the ruins of the Religious Instructor's House are also notable. Sandstone used in that era was cut from the quarry near Long Point, now Point Lisseur, towards the south. The Coffee Palace in Darlington complex of buildings heralds from the Bonacci period and like some of the other buildings on my visit a few years back, houses a museum and interpretation centre. The Long Point Station to the south of Darlington, also closed in 1850, and the UNESCO report noted there is little evidence remaining above ground to indicate the original size and importance of the station now, mostly just ruins and remnants of some brick structures. For me, apart from the beautiful setting, and Bonacci was right about the lovely environment there, it is the historic buildings and ruins and their sense of history that I especially enjoyed. Darlington has information boards all around the settlements and displays in many of the buildings which really help conjure up the past for the visitor. One of the Australian convict sites listed on UNESCO's World Heritage Lists, it is a little gem of a place. I hope you get the opportunity to visit sometime. Next episode, I'll be looking at quite a different period in our history. Thanks to those who helped keep the show afloat, I was able to purchase a needed book for the new story and I'll begin looking at that as soon as I get this story posted. Thanks, as always, for listening. Do pass on the show details to other friends and family that may enjoy the podcast. So take care then, and I'll talk with you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.